If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. We're doing a series, we're looking at this letter in the New Testament, and, and uh, we've gone in this direction because we, I think that this is important for us to kind of onboard some of these realities now as we think through some of the cultural shifts that we've been through and uh, the, the potential future ahead of us as the people of God. And, and I don't want any of us to be surprised by these things. And so we're going to First Peter and we're looking at kind of what happened in the first century and we're acknowledging that there's a very real possibility that some of these themes become more and more prominent in our lifetime and in our experience. So 1 Peter chapter 2 now, let's read verses 4 to 10, and then I'll pray, and we will get to work. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, reads like this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear-headed picture of what you're doing with the church. We pray that we would understand our privileged identity. And we pray, Lord, that that would inspire us to be faithful no matter what. So Lord, I'm I'm asking that you would uh, open the eyes of our hearts to see what you have given us here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we find out, and this is quite surprising, we find out that God is in the middle of a building project. Now, having purchased a building 12 months ago and worked on the building all of those months, uh, I understand that this is a significant reality. But what we find in the Bible is that God has a building project. And he's actually building a house in which he intends to reside. Not, it's not a physical structure like this building. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, made out of brick and mortar. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, and we'll look at some of the features of it here in a moment. But God has a building project, and he is making a house. Now, the first thing when you build a house, as I understand, you want to make sure the foundation is right. And that's a key feature, in fact, Ty and M, my brother and my sister-in-law, they're building a home right now, and uh, they're in that process where they had to dig a hole, and then they had to pour the foundation. And the whole process is pretty nerve-wracking because that part of it, if you get that part wrong, then doesn't matter what, what, what else happens after that. If you get that part wrong, there are some pretty catastrophic realities. And so pouring the foundation is a big deal. It needs to be done well. Well, God draws our attention here to his foundation. We see it in verse 4. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. It says, you're coming to this reality. We'll see that he's the cornerstone and the capstone. But here we're just saying, this, is, this stone that we have is actually a person. And it's the person of Jesus Christ himself, the living stone who was crucified, yet he has resurrected and is alive. You come to him. That's the starting point of this building project. You come to him. You believe in him. You entrust yourself to him. He is the foundational element of this reality. But you, look at verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now it's saying people. So you come to him, the living stone, but then a bunch of other people are being built into this reality. God is using flesh and blood individuals, and he's saying you're being incorporated into the infrastructure of this place. And this will be the spiritual house of the Lord himself. Thomas Schreiner puts it like this. The house is spiritual because it's animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Despite the hesitation of some scholars, Peter clearly identifies the church as God's new temple. It's this place that God is going to take up residence, and it is within a people. Not a physical location per se, but a people that are being built together for God's glory. This is an an incredible reality. One of the best books that I've read recently, I heard about it for so many years uh, throughout my studies in Bible and theology. Everyone talked about it, and I just it was never assigned to me, so I didn't read it until actually I finished it this week. It's called The Temple and the Church's Mission. The subtitle is a, a Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. And the whole argument is very compelling. It's the argument that God, all along, way back in the Garden of Eden, but then with the, the tent that they would set up, the tabernacle and the temple, and, and then in the new heavens and the new earth, God all along had this plan to set up shop and build a place where he would reside with his people. That's why at the end of the Bible, you see it closing and you see the glory of the new heavens and the new earth coming down from heaven with God. And there's no temple there because God himself dwells with his people. So God is building this reality and he's presently at work on it. And he's building out this structure where he's going to take up residence. Now, here's what's crazy. It's you and it's me. God is building a place where he's going to live, and it's us, his church. And we're told why, what, what he's up to here and what we need to do. Verse 5, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we're included in this thing that he's doing, he says, here's, here's what I'm up to. Here's my purpose clause, so that you might be this priesthood. Most of us kind of go, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, What's a priesthood? And why would I want to be a part of that? Why would that be significant to me? And he's saying here, here's what you do. You offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's building us into the place where he will reside. And then not only are we like a fixture in the building, we also become workers within it. We get to perform these spiritual tasks of glorifying God with everything. I'll show it to you from a couple different passages. We'll put, we'll put uh, at least one of them up on the screen here. In Hebrews chapter 13, this idea of Christians being a part of this priesthood is explained in this way. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Here's what it is. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. We are able to offer these sacrifices through Jesus Christ, and a part of it is we speak about him. That's how we 
perform our priestly function. We speak about him. But then the very next verse, and I forgot to include it in the notes, so it won't be up on the screen, but it goes on to say, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We are built into the house of God, and then we function as this royal priesthood, offering these sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And we do that by by offering our lips in service to him, to speak about him, to confess him, and then to do good, to live in a way that's beautiful, that reflects who he is and what he's done. And God is happy to receive that through Jesus Christ. With those sacrifices, God is pleased. So the church then is the household of God filled with people like us, glorifying God with everything that we've got. The question that I want to ask you is, do you see that glory? Do you perceive that glory? I was driving here this morning, and I don't know if any of you were up early enough to see this, but the sunrise this morning was breathtaking. I was driving from my home over to the building here, and we live in Roscoe, so I had to cross over the bridge, uh, the river there, and and I was driving, and I'm looking at the sunrise, and, and I was just stunned by it. And I I said to God, thank you for this. Like as I head off to lead the congregation in worship, you're you're giving me a head start. Thank you. And I prayed and I said that to God. I said, thank you. And I'm looking at the trees because they're all changing colors. And so along the, you know, the bank of the river, they're all different colors. And I'm, I'm expressing my gratitude to God. And so I said, thank you, God. And then I kept driving and I'm on to the next thing. Like I'm just like mentally okay, here are all the things that need to happen before people show up. Here's what I need to get done. And I start doing that, and I'm driving down North 2nd Street, and then I glance over at the trees on the side of the road, and I just, I'm like, look at this. I'm driving by all of this glory, and I'm not even paying attention. I'm thinking about other stuff, and I'm missing it. And so then I just, you know, Again, just express gratitude to God. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because I think that so many of us, when we look at what God says about the church and the glory that resides within her, we blow right by it. We might give a, you know, thank you, God, this is great. Like, yeah, thank you. And then we just move on to the next thing. But if what I'm describing here from the scripture is true, it really ought to captivate our hearts. We ought to be moved by the realities of what God is up to in this world. When we think about the church, we should be stunned by her, and we should be amazed that we're included within her. So my question then is, does this house inspire you? As you look at the local church, do you, do you see it the way that God sees it? Do you look at her and think, this is incredible? That's the question that I think Peter's getting at here because he's writing to the local church in the first century, and we found out about them. They're scattered all over Asia Minor, and as I imagine, and from church history, I don't think that their their churches are all that impressive. They're probably smaller gatherings of believers. They're, They're not stately. They're not impressive. They're not massive. They don't have beautiful buildings or anything like that, but nonetheless, we need to recognize that if it is God's church, it is beautiful. Uh, Social media has Ash and I pegged, my wife and I. Uh, We bought our home in 2016, and uh, we immediately started doing some renovations. It was a, you know, very just builder-grade home. If you go through my neighborhood, they crank these things out. It's like three models of homes, 
And you, they're all the same. They just pump these things out. Everything's the exact same. Um, but we started doing renovations right away. And uh, started just kind of slowly working away at it. And now almost every square inch of my home has some custom things to it from the work that we've been doing. So we're kind of like the poor man's version of Chip and Joanna Gaines. If <laughs> Chip had to learn everything on YouTube and didn't have a budget. So, I mean, we're nothing like Chip and Joanna Gaines. But <laughs> I've worked on my home. So social media then... It has us pegged. So when I open up my, my device and I start scrolling, it shows me DIY projects. And it shows me like, you know, all these different things that you can do in a home. And if you open up Ash's device and you look at how social media is, you know, feeding her the, these different things, there's custom homes. Like custom homes. She'll show them to me and we're like, oh, this is so beautiful. Look at this. It's almost like idea boards for us. And you see all these features and you go, man, this is incredible. So when you start thinking about God's church, God's house, what do you suspect it's going to look like? What would you intuitively think? Okay, if God's building a home, like I don't even know what I'm doing and I can make my home look better, what do you think God is going to do? And you would, you would suspect that if you look at his dwelling place, it would be breathtaking. Here's the reality, though. It's, ex it's the exact opposite. In most cases, the local church, you look at it, it is not stately. It is not impressive. It is not well-designed. It is, it is not majestic in the way that you would observe something from a human vantage point. That's what Peter is saying here to his audience and to us. He's saying, listen, what God is doing will often appear to be unimpressive. People will resent it. They will reject it. What you need to know about it, though, is... It is chosen by God and precious to him. If you were to see this from God's vantage point, you would see something entirely different. So he says, there's a principle here. There's a principle here that what God is up to is often misread as unimpressive, undesirable, resented, and rejected. But that doesn't phase God. Let's look at, let's look at this here. First, we see it in the reception of Jesus himself in verse 4. We already saw it in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, here it is, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. What was the human evaluation of the Lord? The human evaluation was, this guy doesn't cut it. He's not going to get done what we need done. Look at him. He is a carpenter from Galilee. He's, a, you know, he's from Nazareth, like this you know, backwoods place. Then you look at his followers and you go, are you kidding me? These guys? untrained ordinary fishermen. And then you look at the, the social dynamic of the group. So he picked a bunch of people. One of them was a zealot, meaning, you know, they're under Rome's jurisdiction and they're oppressed. And there's a group of people who are like, okay, if Rome's going to oppress us, we're going to fight back against it. And we're going to strap on swords and we're going to go punch them in the nose. So you got one of those dudes on the team. And then you've got a tax collector who is compromised. Who has, who, who has done things in collaboration with Rome. So you're looking at a group of people and you're going, these guys could never get this done. These guys could never accomplish what we need. What we need is to be liberated from this oppression. What we're waiting for is our king. And when that king shows up, when the Messiah shows up, he will be glorious. He will be majestic. He will be powerful. He will set up shop. He, he will punch Rome in its nose. He'll do away with all this stuff that we're dealing with, and we will be back in business. 
And then Jesus comes and he goes, here I am. And they go, no, we don't want you. You can't do it. You're, this is not what we had in mind. This is not it. And in fact, he's arrested. And then if you remember the part where, where Pilate, um, you know, he's interrogating him and he doesn't know what to make of him. So he just says, I kind of want to wash my hands of this situation. I don't want to make this determination. There's got to be another way around it. So he brings out the Lord and another prisoner and he goes, hey, there's a custom that we have. I can release one of these dudes to you. Which one do you want? What does the crowd say? Give us Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one who was arrested because he was a part of a campaign where they were murdering other Romans and they got caught. That's the kind of guy that's going to get stuff done. This guy, Jesus, no way. And Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with him? They say, crucify him. We're done with him. We don't want anything to do with him. He's not our guy. Now listen, that's the, that's the way it plays out in real time. God says, here is my son. And the world says, we don't want him. He's not going to do it the way we think it should be done. We don't want him. Kill him. But God says, he is chosen by me and precious to me. This is my strategy. And you watch what happens. Look, this is how the Bible uh, has spoken of it all along. Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, it says, listen, here's what God is up to. He has a strategy that is counterintuitive. It doesn't look impressive. What's impressive is you get a bunch of horses and a bunch of chariots. You lean on Egypt, you lean on Babylon, you lean on Assyria, you lean on some human thing that could help you out. But God says, no, my strategy is different. You lean on the stone, the living stone, the cornerstone, and whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. But people don't like that plan. So verse 7, it says, now to you who believe, to the, to the Christians, to the church, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders look at it and they go, this is garbage. We can't work with this. This stone will not work for us. And the architect says, I don't give a rip what you think, because this is my stone. And this stone, Jesus Christ, is precious and is chosen and is perfect for the task at hand. And most people will look on him and turn away from him. Now, Peter is quoting from Psalm 118 here. And Psalm 118 is a, is a psalm where, um, well, let me read from a, a paragraph from my Howard Marshall. It reads like this. The quotation comes from a psalm about the king going to the temple to give thanks to God for a military victory. It seems that even among his own people, some rejected him and had doubts about his ability. Now he had been vindicated by God who caused his triumph. And that's where that quotation comes from. It's basically saying, there, there are moments where people look at what God is up to and they go, I don't think you can get it done. Not in this way, not with this person. This is not going to play out the way we hope. And then the king comes back victorious and vindicated. And that's exactly what the crucifix and resurrection of Jesus Christ are. We look at him, humanity looks at him and he says, this will not work. And then he's vindicated. He comes back victorious and risen, and reigning, and very much alive, and very much 
doing quite well. So Jesus is this stone that people trip over. Verse 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which, which is what they were destined for. So because they're not receiving him as Messiah, they're not receiving him as Savior, they're not receiving him as the way of salvation, they are tripping over him. They're, they're not willing to surrender to him. They want, they want something else. They want something more impressive. And so the point that's being made here is, if you consider the local church, there's a paradigm. The king was the one that God appointed, and he was rejected. He was rejected by humanity, but nonetheless, God did not adapt his strategy to try to accommodate us. Jesus is his man. Now, what do you suppose the church is going to experience then? More of the same. More of the same. The world will look at us, and it will scoff. The world will look at us and it will think that is so unimpressive, right? You walk into a local church on a Sunday morning and you look around and you just go, this is not going to revolutionize the world. Look at these people. But through the, through the eyes of God, through his grid, all of a sudden we look at it and you begin to see this is glory. This is the majesty of God because he is building a house out of us and it is by grace, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ, and if we're a part of it, this is wild. And he's going to do something that while it may be rejected by humanity, it really is glory. It really is glory. My concern for the local church nowadays is that we do not have a beefy enough theology of what it is. And so right now, you know, I was thinking about it this week, there are so many pastors who are throwing up their hands and giving up nowadays. And I think a part of the reason why is we are evaluating the church through the wrong grid. We look at the local church to be this impressive entity. We, we, we walk into a church and we go, okay, we want this thing to be well-ordered and well-designed. We want a business leader from the community to come in here and say, look at you guys. You guys are doing awesome. You've got a, you've got a process. You've got, you've got a scope and a sequence for developing leaders and all these different things. And you're just, you're doing a great job. We're evaluating the church through the wrong grid. We look at things like the worship services, and we want people from you know, production companies to come in and look at it and go, wow, this is amazing. What we ought to be evaluating is how God sees his local church, a redeemed people that he is fashioning together for his glory, and that any of us is a part of it is an incredible reality. Well, if that's the case, then that should help us navigate life in a fallen world. We might be rejected. We might be treated with hostility, but God looks on us and he sees beauty. And that's what verses 9 and 10 do for us. They remind us of our identity. They show us who we truly are. The surprising identity of the people of God comes in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. It says, but you, you are a chosen people. God is saying here through Peter that the people of God are this new entity, this new ethnicity. It's actually using that word in Greek. It's saying that you are a new, you're a new people group. You're not just a bunch of Americans that decide to gather together. You are a citizen of God's people. You are a chosen people. Now quickly, I just want to point out, I, I, I do this quite often. I think it's important for us to remember. If you, You'll notice here that everything he says, he's borrowing from the Old Testament. In fact, this whole section, by the way, every single verse borrows from Old Testament passages. 
I say that because there's a, there's a notion in modern Christianity that wants to dismiss the Old Testament as irrelevant. Peter wouldn't have that. He leans very heavily on the Old Testament as the document to help us understand who we are. A.W. Tozer puts it like this, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. We need to become people who love this book and not just our favorite parts of it, but the whole, the whole of it. We need to understand that God, even in the Old Testament, has given us a lot of help here. I would even put it like this. If you don't read your, your Old Testament scriptures, you don't actually know who you are. You don't really understand who you are. What Peter does here is he gives us just a litany of all these different realities from the Old Testament that say, this is you. This is you. This is you. This is who you are. You are included in God's people. Let's look at them. You are God's chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests. You are a bunch of people that God has given this assignment, this calling, this title that's very incredible. You get to interface with God himself, and you get to bring sacrifices of praises before God himself. You're a holy nation. You're, you're a new people group in that way. You are God's special possession out of all creation. It's all his. It all belongs to him. Every person, every, every aspect of creation, all of the cosmos, it's all his. But then he looks on his people and he says, this, this right here, this is dearest to my heart. This is my special possession. This is my treasure, the Lord would say. All these things remind us of the privileged status that we have as the people of God. And then in verse 10, it quotes Hosea. It says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's quoting from Hosea. If you guys have read that book before, God tells a prophet, I want you to marry a prostitute, somebody who's going to be unfaithful to you. And he has two children with her. Her name's Gomer, by the way. Please don't name your children Gomer. But they have two children, and the one is named Lo-Rahami. And it means, not my people. The other one, I can't remember the exact Hebrew name, but it, it means, no mercy. You have not received mercy. Two children. And, and it's, a, it's an extended kind of parable of what it's like for God. God commits himself to a people. He says, I, I love you. I'm, re- I'm taking you as my own. And that people group says, yeah, that's great, but we would rather pursue other lovers. We, we would like to dismiss you and have everything else. And eventually God, so, so, you know, the prophet goes through that experience of marrying an unfaithful woman, and then God tells him, I want you to go back to her, and I want you to redeem her. I want you to get her back. And I want you to do everything that's necessary to renew those vows. Remarry her. And he does that, and God says, this is what I do. This is my MO. This is how I deal with with my unfaithful people. Once you had not been my people, but I am bringing you back. Now you are the people of God. Once you had no mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, this is how I work. This is my, this is my saving work right here. People who are not in a relationship with God are drawn in. And so if you have experienced that, you're now a part of this community where God is building us up so that he could take residence within us. And we then are supposed to glorify God with our lives. Look at verse 9. He's done this so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
He has redeemed and rescued us. He has set his affection on us. He's saved us. So what do we do? We respond with praise. We declare his praises, the one who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We let our lives communicate the value of being in a relationship with the living God. We talk about it. We sing about it. We, we live like it. We allow our lives to become a living testimony of the reality of God. We are following him, and whatever he wants us to do, we will gladly do, because he is our redeeming king. So finally, we'll wrap this thing up. Think about this. What Peter is saying then is the local church is the most incredible institution in all of creation. It is the household of God. He's taking ordinary, flawed people like you and me, and he's building us together. He says, this is where I'm going to set my presence. I'm going to dwell with you. We get to be a part of this by faith in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We come to him, the living, precious cornerstone that God has set in place. We become a part of this institution that from a worldly standpoint is in many ways unimpressive. But from God's vantage point, it is glorious. It is the community of the redeemed that he has set his affection on and he has saved and he has drawn us together. Our job then is to respond with adoration and praise. The one who called us out of darkness and into, wonder, into his wonderful light loved us, redeemed us, and saved us. So we declare his praises come what may. The world might treat us with hostility. It might resent us. It might look at us funny. But at the end of the day, here's the thing that we know to be true. We are chosen and precious to God himself. And that is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would inspire us to see, to see ourselves the way that you look at us. Lord, we're so grateful for the local church and, and we admit that all too often we talk about her in the wrong kind of ways. We think about her in the wrong sort of ways. We evaluate her with the wrong sort of criteria. Lord, you have redeemed us. That any of us are a part of your local church is a miracle. So Lord, we praise you for your saving and redeeming work, and we ask God that you would inspire us as your church to declare your praises, to offer spiritual sacrifices of praise through Jesus Christ for your glory. Amen.